this is the room now we can review. It's the 9th of June, 2017, and I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com, with the highlights of this week's news at RoomNow.com. Um, the big news is going to be the following. The FDA gets tough on opioids. How about the methotrexate mavens fight back about alcohol? And how long is too long for long-term bisphosphonate use? These to follow. At the top of the news, um, you should all be aware of the AVI scholarship program. If you're not, this has been going on a number of years, and AVI announced again its continuation of this program. I think it's important um, that we know about this for our patients, especially our young patients. Um, this is a, a grant program that issues $15,000 a year to applicants who apply who have rheumatic diseases and want to second, uh, further their secondary education. It's a really nice program. It's designed specifically for those who have rheumatoid arthritis and serious rheumatic disease. It does not have to be a TNF inhibitor that they're, that they're taking. It can be any drug and in any need, uh, needy situation. Um, um, uh, the information that you will need, it can be found on the uh, AVI website. Um, an interesting report ref, uh, was seen this week where they looked at claims data uh, and looked at the comparative effects of allopurinol or fabuxostat in reducing the um, incidence of um, renal disease. Now, obviously, uh, this is going to be a population of individuals taking those drugs probably for gout and maybe some for um, nephrolithiasis. But looking at patients taking those two, those two drugs um, and looking specifically at the onset of new renal disease, which occurs in both gout and nephrolithiasis, and theoretically the inhibition of um, uh, uric, uric acid uh, and its production should lead to less renal disease over time. Um, I think this sort of unbiased view um, may be insightful. And in fact, what the claims data showed was that allopurinol was associated with, I think, about a 29% lower risk of uh, incidental renal disease. Um, the hazard ratio was 61%, so that makes it actually a 39% reduction. Um, interesting data, uh, and I think it co coincides with the fact that most of us would use allopurinol first as opposed to fibuxostat. Uh, a nice review of myositis in lupus patients shows that it's more likely to occur with the following constellation of symptoms, uh, lupus rash, alopecia, pericarditis, vasculitis, serologies that would include SM and RNP and double-stranded DNA autoantibodies, low platelets, low complements, and neutropenia, all being sort of associated with those who are maybe at higher risk for developing myositis with lupus. Um, a nice review appears in the literature about myocarditis and the clinical associations that have been seen with it. Uh, just as a review, um, myocarditis can be seen with sarcoidosis, Bichette syndrome, Churg-Strauss, inflammatory myositis, and lupus. A study from a few years ago, the Quest RA, I came across recently, and I thought it was interesting because it talks to the comorbidities that occur with chronic inflammatory disease, in this case, rheumatoid arthritis. This is a multinational study of a large number of patients, tens of thousands, maybe 40,000 patients, and showed that the average rheumatoid arthritis patient has two or more comorbidities, the most common ones being hypertension, osteoporosis, and osteoarthritis. Um, it turns out that um, fatigue uh, is commonly associated with the presence of comorbidity, um, as is disease activity. 
So um, something that needs to be addressed, I don't think that we do a good, a a good job of addressing comorbidity. We assume it's going to be managed by the primary care doctor. They assume we're managing it. And the patient assumes that you're the smartest doctor in their mix of doctors, so they often don't go to their primary care doctor. You do need to address comorbidity and how it's going to be managed. Um, a nice review appeared in the literature about tofacitinib and its use in alopecia areata. As you know, there's a, it's an autoimmune disease, hair loss, a wide range of just sort of patchy hair loss to complete total body hair loss called alopecia universalis. And there's been reports in the past um, about success when using tofacitinib, often at high doses, 10 milligrams twice a day. And there are clinical trials going on right now that are looking at this, not just with uh, tofacitinib, but other JAK inhibitors. Um, but we're at this point waiting for those results. And this one um, study looked at 13 patients who received tofacitinib at the usual dose that's currently available, five milligrams twice a day, in 13 patients who had a variety of severity for alopecia areata. They showed about 50% regrowth uh, after about four to five months. And this is sort of in keeping with some of the larger reports that have come out since the initial single case reports. The initial single case reports were very shocking as far as almost complete growth of hair, almost like this, when uh, they go on tofacitinib. The more, uh, the larger case reports have shown a variable amount of, uh, of hair improvement, although the majority do improve their hair growth. Complete hair growth is seen in less than 50%. But again, that 50% number uh, of responders and, or degree of response seems to be common. This is probably going to be a dose-related effect, but we need to see the results of the clinical trials. That's probably going to happen uh, late this year, early next year. Um, there are also some interesting reports in the area of JAK inhibitors where um, case reports on tofacitinib and another JAK inhibitor called uh, raloxacitinib used in other conditions uh, where, the, where those have been used in refractory cases of dermatomyositis and have yielded surprisingly good results. Uh, this is leading several of the manufacturers to develop clinical trials in dermatomyositis. They'll probably be open label, they'll probably be small, but nonetheless, that is a, a research that's much needed going forward. Uh, certainly, we do need uh, more options for our patients who have dermatomyositis. Um, metformin has been often used lately with regard to uh, as an adjunctive agent. It may have effects on, on IL-17 and TH17 cells. A recent study which looks at the effects of metformin um, and its effects on, on the gut microbiome um, and, and how it may work in diabetes. So uh, while there are a lot of postulates about metformin working, it seems that a lot of its effect may be mediated by a change in the gut microbiome. And in fact, taking the uh, fecal transplants of metformin-altered uh, microbiota has actually improved the glucose tolerance in animal models. So uh, a sort of surprising result, but um, a, a novel finding for metformin uh, for both diabetes and maybe even for its use in autoimmune disease like psoriasis. Um, the FDA um, came up with recent news just yesterday suggesting that uh, Opana extended release uh, a long-acting opioid be removed from the market by its manufacturer, Endo Pharmaceuticals. Uh, they did not mandate this. They have suggested this. Um, um, Opana, a long-acting uh, drug, has been often abused. It's been on the market since 2006. People would crush it to get a, a faster effect, a, a higher high, so to speak. And in, uh, in the years since its approval, the manufacturer has tried to 
um, um, make it more tamper resistant, but that has not been met with much success. A recent uh, review by an advisory committee suggested that the risks far outweigh the benefits and that the newer drugs that are being approved as long-acting opioids are much more tamper resistant. So again, the FDA has gone forward and said that this should be removed uh, and it's going to be a voluntary removal. We'll wait and see what the manufacturer says. If they don't comply, it's likely that the FDA will take further steps to take it off the market. Um, a nice debate uh, can be seen in the correspondence section of the current edition of Annals of Rheumatic Disease. Um, Mike Weinblatt and uh, Joel Kremer wrote a letter to the editor, to, specifically to the authors of a paper that re, uh, was published earlier in the year uh, by, oh, I forget the name, a group of authors um, looked at the, a UK database and commented on uh, how safe it was to take alcohol while you were on methotrexate. And what they found, what they recommended was that um, if you looked at those people who took 14 or less alcoholic units per week, um, the incidence of methotrexate hepatotoxicity, as defined as a threefold or higher elevation in transaminases, um, was not significantly higher. And it was only when you went above 14 drinks per week, 14 units per week, that you were seeing higher in numbers. Well, um, in response to this, the, the, the gentleman who developed the guidelines on methotrexate use, Joel Kramer, Mike Weinblatt, uh, there were others, uh, Graciel Alarcon was the lead author on that paper, um, they've come out and wrote a nice reply back saying, wasn't too long ago that we were worried about the liver and we were doing liver biopsies regularly in, in these patients. And, um, and they said that you know the, it was erroneous for the authors to take an arbitrary cutoff of threefold higher elev uh, elevations as some indicator of, of liver damage. Um, they pointed out, uh, Weinblatt and Kremer, that uh, the stringency in which they made their definitions, they had histologic evidence, that complete re medical records. Uh, and again, there was a conservative guideline regarding uh, alcohol. This move to more, uh, allow more liberal use of alcohol, which I sort of believe in, um, actually is really not yet based on any good evidence. So um, they sort of chastise the authors for um, their suggestions that it's okay to do that. The authors actually agreed with much of the points made by Kremer and Weinblatt, although they said they wanted something more practical and pragmatic, and that they say that um, they're not advocating that patients drink 14 units a week, but that there should be a conversation between the patient and the prescribing physician. Um, and then uh, we have a few more things in, in, in the news. I guess biosimilar reports came out this week. This was a, uh, our fifth installment of biosimilars and what's new in the world of biosimilars. As you know, in April, there was a new infliximab um, uh, biosimilar called Renflexus made by um, Samson BioEpis, uh, the same people who make the, those exploding telephones. Um, and this is now the fourth TNF inhibitor to be on the market, the fifth biosimilar in the United States to be approved. Um, that's sort of a landmark for this uh, in the last few months. Uh, obviously, some really nice uh, uh, literature reports. The Dan Bio study looked at uh, switching. The Northwich study, which we wrote about on our on our site, is covered in here. Um, there's a nice review. Um, uh, new guidelines actually put forward by um, um, uh, the EMA. There's a new biosimilar guideline that's put out for physicians in the EU, but it's, I think for those of you who are looking for some new instructive overviews, 
that might be a nice one to look at. And lastly, something we hinted at, but we're going to follow closer is the uh, Supreme Court case of Amgen versus Sandoz, where they're at this level of Supreme Court asking questions about how long one company has to give another company notice before they market their new biosimilar. Uh, and there are some patent issues. This is overall being called the patent dance. Uh, so you might want to look into that and watch for more information about that going forward. The last report we have today is uh, a higher risk of fracture in women, older women who are taking bisphosphonates. This is a, a study from the Women's Health Initiative. Over 5,000 women followed prospectively. They looked at their bisphosphonate use and whether they were on it for two years uh, and then compared that to those who are on bisphosphonates for um, three to five, six to nine, 10 to 13 years. They showed that um, um, those that were taking bisphosphonates for 10 to 13 years had a 29% higher risk of any and all fractures. When they looked at individual fractures, vertebral and non-vertebral, it wasn't significant, but for all fractures, it was significant. The hazard, the hazard ratio is 1.29 uh, and suggests a significance. So clearly it says that, you know, really long, prolonged use of bisphosphonates may not be a good use. Um, and obviously you need to make that decision based on how much they need the bisphosphonate or other um, therapies that will build up bone. So. Um, a nice uh, instructive report from the Women's Health Initiative. That's it for this week at RoomNow.com. You can go to the website to find the links to these reports and read more about these reports. You can listen to this as a podcast from iTunes, or we'll post the link from SoundHound. Um, please be sure to give us a really high rating so that we can win an Academy Award, Tony, Katie Award, whatever awards they're giving out this day for the Internet. We'll see you next week.